Hello, and thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Theory Lab podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I work in our research department here. We've had a bunch of interviews lately with uh, scientists at different stages of their careers. We've got a lot more coming down the pike, but we haven't spoken with anybody before who's had four different ACS grants uh, until now. Dr. Pam Krieger, she's an associate professor in uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. She's had four grants with us, postdoctoral fellowship. She had an institutional research grant. She had a research scholar grant. And most recently, she uh, received our Mission Boost Grant. It's a new kind of award that we we just started um, last year, 2018. Um, you know, we've for 20 years or so, we've been supporting young investigators, beginning investigators. So with this Mission Boost Grant, what we're trying to do is, is support current and past grantees uh, who are trying to translate their research to human testing. Um, and Dr. Krieger put together a tr like a great application. This is a really competitive uh, awards process. And she was one of a handful of people selected. So she talked to us about, about the science behind her grant. Um, also, why the Mission Boost grant was a really good fit for her. Uh, she's an engineer. She's kind of been dabbling in you know, the basic science and translational science space. And, um, and um, this, this grant really helped her focus her, her curiosity and research in a great way. She also had some pretty cool advice for people thinking about applying for the Mission Boost grant. Um, so my colleague, Dr. Susanna Greer, uh, spoke with her, and uh, we'll get to the interview right now. All right. Hi, Pam. Thanks for joining us Hi. today. No problem. So I'm excited to talk to you because you've got a long history with the American Cancer Society. Very impressive. Um, if memory serves me correctly, you were an ACS postdoc. Is that right? Yeah, I had an ACS postdoc uh, during my postdoc at MIT. Um, nice. funded the the last year of my training there and was really, I think, very helpful for me when I was applying for faculty applications to show that I had this external funding history. And then you went on and you had a research scholar grant from ACS. Well, actually, even before that, in my first couple of years at Wisconsin, we have an institutional grant and I right. had a pilot project. Oh, very nice. So that was, yeah, that was, I think, either, I think that was my first actual peer-reviewed funding because it is, although internal, it is peer-reviewed. Right. Um, and then, so that was in, within my first year or so as a faculty, and then that was the preliminary data for the Research Scholar grant then. Okay, wonderful. Well, and those postdoc grants are definitely peer-reviewed, so that's a feather yeah. in your cap okay. too. <laughs> yeah, those were, yeah, that was a definitely, I believe it took me two submissions to get that one funded, which it's it's perfectly, you know, normal, and it was a good experience to realize, okay, how do you respond to comments? How will that help you to improve your project? And that you just have to keep trying. Absolutely. Well, I mean, clearly you took those lessons to heart because you were incredibly successful as a research scholar grant recipient. And in January, you joined our very first class of Mission Boost grant recipients. So congratulations. It's a, it is that is an extremely impressive trajectory of ACS funding. So I hope you're proud of yourself, and um, hopefully you've gotten some nods from your administrators about those accomplishments. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, 
it's not exaggerating that I, I say to people that I probably owe my career to the ACS because it's been a consistent, uh, you know, boost along the way. Um, and in particular, one of my stronger mentors uh, when I started here was Patricia Keeley, who was also a strongly ACS-funded scholar. Um, she unfortunately passed recently from pancreatic cancer, but, it, you know, having somebody who had been funded through the ACS who understood and who also, you know, could help me to interpret those comments and, and keep working was really useful. Right. I'm, I'm so sorry for the loss. It was a big loss to you and to the scientific community. Yeah. Um, but I'm so glad she was such a mentor to you. That's really wonderful. So I think uh, we'd love to hear just maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your Mission Boost grant, um, any of your ideas on what you hope to accomplish. I think that'd be fun to know. Yeah, so it, it built from the Research Scholar Grant, um, where after about three years of work, we decoded this mechanism where the macrophages in the ovarian cancer microenvironment can actually change the behavior of the mesothelial cells, which are the cells normally lining the outside of healthy organs um, in the peritoneal cavity. And so through this alteration, they essentially become stickier so that the tumor cells can metastasize and, and attach more readily. Um, and in going through this mechanism, it was interesting because one of the steps of the mechanism involves the CCR5 receptor, which is mm -hmm. also the co-receptor for HIV, so there are already drugs out there and FDA approved for HIV applications. Um, so what we want to do under the boost is to test whether or not those drugs are effective in preclinical models, so mouse models of ovarian cancer. Are they effective in slowing metastasis? And then we would like to, in, if we are successful there in the secondary boost, then do a pilot study for safety and efficacy. Um, you know, are we actually hitting the right target in uh, ovarian cancer patients? And I think that what attracted me to pursuing this path is one as an FDA approved drug, we if it is successful in our preclinical and early clinical models, it should have a faster track to approval. Um, we know the long term safety and efficacy and the, uh, so a lot of that groundwork is already laid for us hopefully. Um, and but the, the challenge there, and this is why the boost I think is, is useful, is this isn't a, a great R01 project. Um, it wouldn't be a great R01 project until you find the mechanism. You mm -hmm. can't really propose to do all this clinical, preclinical and clinical modeling until you have a good mechanism. But then once that's where you're at, that's not really enough to be an R01. Um, and yet to propose like a full clinical trial we're not there yet either. Um, and so it, it is sort of this in-between gap where basically I had tried to write it as an R01, and by the time the reviewers were satisfied with the mechanism, then their response was, but you've already done the mechanism. There's not enough left to do. Um, and luckily around then, the boost, uh, I got the, the, I, the boost was announced during this process, and I applied for that. And so now that at least provides us a way to do these follow-up studies and then see where it goes while we continue, you know, to get R01 funding, hopefully for our other basic science stuff that's a little earlier stage. Well, I mean, that is exactly why we put the mission boost out there. So we, we really felt like it could fill uh, funding voids and 
uh, it sounds like that's exactly what it's done for you. So um, that's awesome. I, I'd really like to know kind of what are you most excited about? We all, I mean, if you have multiple kids, everybody's like, which child do you like the most? And you don't want to say, and I know there's lots of parts of your project that you're excited about, but there's there a piece of this that is especially risky or innovative or um, could have the most patient impact that really is the what keeps you up at night? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's this idea. I think our, our goal in cancer is obviously always a cure. But ovarian cancer is diagnosed at such a late stage and is such a heterogeneous mess. I mean, all cancers are, but it's, it's particularly far on that spectrum. Um, and so this idea of can we slow metastasis, can we improve patient quality of life, started to become much more compelling to me. Honestly, you know, your analogy of your favorite children made me think about, okay, well, what about these, you know, getting extra years for women who have children, um, who have grandchildren, that that's, that's an important goal too. And while this may not be a cure, if those years can be better quality of life years, um, that's something that I would be personally very gratified to have been a part of. Um, And so I'm excited to see where this goes. And honestly, for the last few years, I've been towing this line of do I want to be a basic scientist or a translational scientist, and I don't really know some days. Um, And so this is kind of nice because it's letting me dabble a little further into that. Obviously, when the clinical work comes around, it will be done with an MD collaborator. I'm a straight PhD. Um, But it's a nice opportunity for me to get a little closer to that. And also, it helped me with this, this quandary that, okay, I find something interesting as a basic scientist. It's not like there are just people waiting out there to take your idea to do the next step. Like, they have their own projects and their own favorite children to work on. And so, unless you're really willing to keep going with it, it's very easy for stuff to just fall off. Right. Um, I love so, the fact that you're willing to take that risk, too, and that you're willing to um, put yourself in a place that, for many basic, more traditionally basic scientists, are uncomfortable, but you're right, can have some really significant impact that may otherwise not happen. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, maybe partly as an engineer, I I, kind of like this idea that, you know, I'm always willing to try different and new things because it's not normal for an engineer to be a very basic biologist researcher, and yet that's sort of where my work has gone is is much more basic mechanisms. Um, I, I think that's part of what keeps science fun is that I don't, I don't see myself doing the same thing my whole career. I think, I mean, some people, you know, some scientists love, they have their pathway and their protein and they're going to work on that and, and really understand it in great depth. I think as an engineer, I'm much more interested in diverse ideas and how to integrate things and then how to move them forward. So you may already have touched on this um, because you, you mentioned that if this uh, moves into the, Second phase, which has to be inpatient, you'll need a clinical collaborator. But I'd love to know, because uh, I think it could be helpful for folks who are trying to decide whether or not to apply for this grant, is what do you see as kind of your biggest challenge? Um, so actually, I, I'm pretty fortunate where I am that I, I do already have good cl- uh, clinical collaborators. I have a fantastic pathologist that I've worked with for a long time um, on some of these projects, and then uh, a guy in Ankh who's, you know, been a 
involved in my students' committees and things like that. And so we've talked over time. And she was willing to say that, yes, she would help me with the clinical aspects of this grant. Um, so I, I think, you know, the challenge that I can't fully answer is, you know, how well will we recruit patients for this and, and things like that. But I, I'm pretty confident based on their history of, you know, doing clinical research at UW and the kinds of studies that we propose, which are fairly um, low risk for the patient that, you know, we'll be able to actually do the studies. I think the biggest risk, of course, is always will it work, but the only way you find that out is you try. Right, and we're willing to take that risk with you. I mean, this um, this mechanism is really intended to fund that um, high-risk, high-reward research um, where, you know, well, oftentimes we won't be right, but when we are, you're right, it'll be a it'll be a home run. So I, I would be interested to know if um, what you would say if you had colleagues who had received funding from the ACS and are just on the fence about whether or not to apply for this grant, what would you tell them? Because I mean, we're all really busy and <laughs> researchers yeah. have to make decisions. I mean, you can't apply for everything, but is there um, is there something you would share or maybe a population of people that you would say, yeah, give this a try, or no, this this isn't for you? Well, I think one thing that made this an easy decision to try for was that there was a, a letter of intent stage, which is a, a pretty low bar in terms of writing something. Um, we were already thinking about doing these studies, so it was even easier. I, I had text already written from, you know, that AIM-3 of the R01 that wasn't going to be funded. And, and so there it was more like, okay, I've got the preclinical elements. Now I just have to think about the clinical. And I think if you're at that stage, what was incredibly helpful to me was actually having discussions with those clinical collaborators. Because in my mind, I didn't see what the step between preclinical mouse study and full-blown trial in human patients that would mimic exactly that mouse study. Like, what would be the next, what, what are those intermediate checkboxes that we would need to have to even justify doing a, a, a full clinical trial? And so that's where the idea of you know, we will need to show safety and we would need to show that we are actually hitting the right target. And how would we do that in a patient population rather than in a mouse? Um, and so I was like, oh, once, you know, the clinicians were talking with me about that, I'm like, okay, that's an easy study. I can propose that. I can understand mm -hmm. that. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing would be to make sure you're talking to the clinicians and so that you're not going too far down the path. Um, because that may not actually be helpful. It's so nice to hear you describe it because I think those are conversations that so many researchers have in their head and oftentimes, um, for whatever reason, let those roadblocks um, uh, kind of prevent them from taking that risk and talking to a collaborator or potential collaborators. And um, many of us are surrounded by people who um, may have that great idea that really helps you, as you said, to understand what the next appropriate step would be. So awfully glad you did it. It is a fantastic proposal, and you're excited about it. Um, I think I just have one more question. I'd really yeah. love to know if, if there's something you could say to a cancer patient or a survivor or someone who is taking care of someone who's been diagnosed, um, what, the, what might that be? Well, I mean, honestly, cancer affects everyone. It's affected my family. Um, it's affected uh, friends. It's 
you know, um, it's, it's unfortunately a very universal experience. So I would say probably one of the best things to do is to reach out and, and try to find other people who've had similar experiences, what helps them to get through it, um, to make sure that you're getting the best clinical care you can early on, because that is, is particularly in the, the field I work in, ovarian cancer, it's, you know, how good is your initial surgery? And so you need to find the right uh, match for that early on in order to have your best chance. Um, and it's also, I think, important to remember that if possible, maybe a way for to give back is useful. Like I know as a researcher, I benefit greatly from all the patients who consent to donate tissue, um, for example. Like that's, it, it seems like a small thing. Oh, I signed a consent form so that my tissue, instead of medical waste, it's used for research. But that's really what's going to allow us to move forward and hopefully to benefit the patients that currently have cancer, but if not, at least to benefit the patients in five years or 10 years who will have cancer because I don't, I don't think it's ever going to fully go away from the human existence. And so we have to figure out what we can do you know, to improve our treatment approaches. Absolutely. Well, we certainly appreciate what you're doing. I'm excited about it, and we'll look forward to seeing that stage two application soon. So we'll let you get back to work, Pam, but thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us today. No problem. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Theory Lab podcast. Um, Before we go, I want to let you know about our Blueprint for Cancer Control. It's a series of uh, publications in CA, a cancer journal for clinicians. And it's it's basically looking at everything we know about cancer control. We put, we put together all the facts um, to, to help us uh, attack cancer in the most sensible way, right? Uh, what are the trends? Uh, what progress have we made? What do we know about prevention? Um, what do we know about the, you know, what the best screening tests are and the provision of care, survivorship? And, you know, then, then we're going to look at if we did everything that we know we should be doing, what would cancer look like in 2035, 2040? Uh, so check it out, uh, the ACS Blueprint for Cancer Control. Um, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.